Hello, and welcome to Beyond Organic Wine. This is Adam Huss coming to you from Los Angeles, California. Thank you so much for listening. Something a little personal about me, I donate annually to Wikipedia. Why? Because I use it regularly and I value it. Pretty simple. Of all the things that I support in the course of the year that I wish I didn't have to, like oil companies when I buy gas or pay utilities, or Meta when I use Instagram, Facebook, or WhatsApp, I also want to make sure that I tangibly support the things that I actually care about and want to remain part of our world, and that I can continue to expand my knowledge and bring more quality of life to my life. So I donate to Wikipedia, I shop at farmer's markets, and I buy wine from local producers who strive to be beyond organic. If you enjoy and value this podcast, please consider supporting it. You can support this podcast by making a donation at beyondorganicwine.com. You can also become a Patreon subscriber for a very low monthly gift. And that link is in the show notes of every episode. You can also sponsor an episode. Just email me at connect at organicwinepodcast.com and we can discuss sponsorship. And even just taking a literal minute of your time to give a great review on your podcast app is valuable. Thank you so much to those of you who already have and continue to give to make this podcast possible. I'm going to resist for as long as possible the meaningless advertising model that radio and many podcasts follow because I have no desire to contribute to more mindless consumerism and I want this podcast to continue to be free of that kind of influence. If you share that value, your support can make another way possible. Thank you for your support. When I fell in love with wine, it was a glass of something that tasted better than delicious. In fact, it tasted bigger than just the sense of taste and smell. I felt it in my core. I hadn't grown up with wine, so it wasn't just a part of the dinner table. It was something special. And this particular wine that I happened upon was even better than special. It felt magical. It so excited my curiosity and wonder that here I am 20 years later, a wine grower, a winemaker, and a wine podcaster. That journey led me through the layers of pretense, the marketing and labeling and scoring and obsessing about a decontextualized beverage until I discovered the source of that magic in the earth. Looking back now, Wine was just a lure that the vines and their domesticated humans created to draw me beneath the surface into a deeper and deeper understanding of the miracle of life itself. As I have come to appreciate the beauty of the complexity of all the interdependent and inseparable lives that make my life possible, I've stopped looking for an outside purpose to my life. I began to see that life is imbued with purpose. It courses with meaning. This is what you can see when you look into the eyes of a fox. This is what you can see when you comprehend how a vine transmutes sunlight into substance, how it reaches with tendrils and unfolds leaves from the swirling cosmic energy that we bifurcate into life and death. You don't need a reason to live. Living is the reason. I do this podcast in a sense, in homage to wine, in gratitude for drawing me into this sense of joyful reconnection with my source. If wine has this power, if the earth has this power, is it too much to refer to it as sacred? My guest for this episode is Cameron Clark. Cameron just finished a master's program at the University of Gastronomic Sciences in Palenzo, Italy. As part of completing his master's, he spent several months working on an ecological farm in Tyrol and wrote a thesis titled 
Spiritual Agriculture, Wellness, and Sustainability, a case study of biodynamic agriculture in South Tyrol, Italy. When I read his thesis, I knew I had to have Cameron come onto the podcast to talk about it so that I could share it with you. He has also graciously allowed me to share the full thesis as a PDF that you can download on this episode page at beyondorganicwine.com. And there you can also find a link to the Three Sisters essay by Robin Wall Kimmerer that Cameron mentions during our conversation. Last week's episode with Garrett Long about biodynamics asked us to reconsider what questions we haven't asked of our farming systems. In this episode, we discussed the central claim of Cameron's that a spiritual approach to agriculture is not just an optional add-on for farmers who happen to have that bent, but it is an essential part of the most efficacious and productive forms of agriculture and will be necessary as we navigate the transition away from anthropocentrism and a value system based on economics. Having said all this, Cameron's definition of spiritual may not be what that term normally conjures for you, so hang in there to hear how he defines spiritual agriculture. We also discuss, as Cameron does in his thesis, the conflicts that arise from trying to practice spiritual viticulture in an economically driven world, and the compromises, complexity, and nuance that results. These are the tough questions we face daily, whether we are directly involved in agriculture or not, and that's why I think you'll find this discussion with Cameron so relevant. As he says in his thesis, we have no choice but to use land. Our existence requires food procurement and energy usage, tying all of us into inextricable relations with the world that leave awake in the lives of others. We are only left then with the choice of how to engage with our land in a life-diminishing or a life-promoting way. Enjoy. Cameron, welcome. Thanks so much for doing this. I'm really excited to talk about everything with you today. Cool. No, thank you, Adam. Really, really, I'm so happy to be here. I, so one of the things I'll just sort of tease uh, where we're headed, but you wrote a thesis and we'll talk about why you are writing a thesis <laughs> and all, um, but you wrote a thesis titled Spiritual Agriculture, Wellness and Sustainability, a case study of biodynamic agriculture in South Tyrol, Italy, which you sent to me, I read, and I was like, this is everything that I think about on a daily basis. I think we really need to talk about this. Um, I, I will get into what you say in that paper, and, and but could you start about just introducing yourself and why you wrote this and where you are right now? Yeah, of course. Um, well, first of all, I just have to really thank you for reading the paper. And it's funny that you say that because I mean, everything that you've spoken about on the podcast has really informed my view and informed my view of agriculture and ecology, the human nature relationship, et cetera, kind of coming into this paper. So <laughs> we had our own little symbiosis going on. There, there. we go. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I, I've been listening for a few years. Um, so right now, I guess I'll start there. I am currently in Italy. I'm in uh, the northwestern Piemonte region, I'm really right in the heart of uh, the Piemonte wine growing region. I'm, I'm just outside of uh, kind of the Barolo, uh, Barbaresco area. Um, mm. And yeah, yeah, it's been quite a wine education uh, yeah. being here for the past year. Um, making me and probably a lot of other people jealous right now. Uh, 
I, I really have to pinch myself every day when I walk down to school. Uh, I mean, really, I'm looking right at these these world-renowned vineyards, and it's just in my backyard. Um, and I mean, and school is what, like a castle, a beautiful castle in the midst of this? Where, yeah, <laughs> where are you? It, it is. Yeah. So this is my university is the University of Gastronomic Sciences. Uh, it's in Polenzo, Italy. Um, and this is this is the kind of the the epicenter for slow food. Um, the neighboring town of Bra is is where slow food was founded. It's the hometown of Carlo Petrini who's still around town. I just saw him yesterday. <laughs> Wave and say buongiorno, and he's so friendly. Um, yeah, and he, so in at the early 2000s, he, I guess he had had a long time uh, dream of starting a university based on the principles of slow food. And so in the early 2000s, um, that's exactly what they did. There's this old castle. It's actually the Royal Savoy family, who's a big, prominent mm. family in, in, in the history of Northern Italy. Um, and it's their old kind of, I guess, summer home, <laughs> but it's this beautiful regal castle um, that was a bit dilapidated at the time, but um, Slow Food kind of rebuilt this place um, into what's now a burgeoning, I mean, epicenter for, for food studies right in the, right in the, the beautiful heart of Piemonte. Um, and since I'm on a wide podcast, I'll just I'll also mention just to add one more point of jealousy for you that in the <laughs> in the basement of the castle is the Banca del Vino or the wine bank, and it's 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 literally the old cantina, the old the old uh, wine cellar of the royal family, who I think were the first to kind of develop uh, the the rich wine tr- making tradition here of this area. Um, so yeah, literally now in this, in this old cantina, they've built a beautiful old wine museum where they house some of the, you know, basically the idea is to curate a record of the Italian wine culture. So Mm. they have all, all of these old bottles from all of the historic vineyards in the area. You can go down and do tastings and it's, it's phenomenal. So all that to Amazing. say, yeah, I'm, I'm in. I'm in. All that heaven. to say, basically, or to just to say, come here, please. Um, uh, it's, it's really it's, a yeah, spectacular no, that place. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> yeah. Wow, so yeah, I'm, no. I, Sorry, please go ahead. No, just that. Um, so yeah, what what I'm doing here? I'm a, I, I just finished a master's program here. Um, and I, I was a farmer, uh, before this, I was a vegetable farmer for a few years. Um, and then I was a bit, um, uh, a, a, a bit tired uh, of the farm as, as one gets and was looking for a little bit of a change of pace, um, and a, a bit of a kind of a, a further mental application of everything I, I had learned on hand on the farm. So. Uh, so yeah, I came here to do this master called New Food Thinking. Um, uh, but yeah, so I've, I've kind of come through this master with this agricultural lens and kind of coupled with my newfound interest in wine. It all kind of came together to lead me to the vineyard where I spent my summer um, and uh, from which the experience of which I from which I wrote this thesis. Where so, were you growing? Where were you growing vegetables? Where are you farming? Yeah, this this was in Virginia. Um, I'm originally from California, and I I went to UC Santa Cruz and did the agroecology program there. 
Um, but yeah, my, uh, my godparents have a farm in Virginia, uh, kind of a, a grass fed, uh, cattle ranch in Southeastern Virginia, just outside of Norfolk. Um, and they, they invited me to come grow vegetables on their farm. Uh, and we're really, it was really a beautiful opportunity. They gave me a patch of land and just said, kind of go for it. So, so with that. I'm really curious. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really curious how because I came from that area, sort of the extended Shenandoah Valley north mm. into Pennsylvania, um, which where it becomes the Cumberland Valley, and then moved to California where I've stayed. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So I did kind of like the reverse. What was it like coming east from California, you know, having been a mm-hmm. ra- born and bred out here? <laughs> uh-huh. I, you know, I, I get this question a lot. People always say, oh, that must have been such a big change or wow you must miss california so much and and honestly i i love the southeast i have totally fallen for it um yeah because i was raised in the bay area and uh over the course of my childhood what i i grew up in the east bay in a small town called pleasanton and it really was a small kind of it really truly was a pleasant little place (laughs) kind of out in those kind of rolling golden hills and over the course of my childhood, it, it just got consumed by the urban sprawl of the Bay Area as Silicon Valley expanded. So to go from that to still just a green, rural southeast where the pace of life is a little slower, um, yeah, I, 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 it's totally stolen my heart. So Nice. Yeah, beautiful. Um, yeah. So you ended up in Italy, though, and mm-hmm. you this but it was what came first was it the uh, going to Ansitz Dornach or the going to school and then that led you to Ansitz Dornach uh yeah exactly the latter um so yeah 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 I came into this year uh yeah with all of these ideas floating around but no particular direction and just uh my godparents while I was working at their farm in Virginia kind of start began to inculcate me with their with their love and passion for wine and then being Uh, here you're just consumed by it um and so i really i really fell in love with wine and viticulture and through your podcast just got really inspired with viticulture so i wanted to to spend my summer part of our program is this obligatory three-month internship so I decided Great. to spend uh, my internship, yeah, getting, I mean, getting hands-on uh, in the vineyard and seeing what what kind of regenerative agriculture on a vineyard really looked like. Um, and yeah, I got connected through to Doorknock through a friend that I made. At, I went to the Slow Wine Fair in Bologna last year, and uh-huh. um, I made a friend there who had interned at Doorknock, so he made the connection for me. Um, nice. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it sounds like, I mean, we'll get into what it's like, but dang, <laughs> um, <laughs> sounds pretty special. I feel jealous of even your work experience there. It sounds incredible. Uh, uh, um, it's really, it's really been, a, um, this place, there's a, really a magic to it. I mean, this year's just been a dream. So, yeah. Mm, fantastic. Well, you wrote this paper and although part of it did have to do with, I mean, a, a big part of it is the case study of, of Dorna and also, you know, drawing from those experiences there. Uh, another, I, I mean, I'd say it extends much 
bigger than that. And the scope is much broader than that and really talks about biodynamics as a agroecological practice and, and in the context of, you know, history really. (laughs) Um, And I, I, you know, I'll just start by saying your central argument is really pretty fantastic. And, and that's kind of, you know, the meat of what I'd love you to talk about, which is, if I can characterize this correctly and correct me if I don't, but essentially say that the success of biodynamics as an agroecological system, as in its measurable ability to boost soil organic matter, soil microbial diversity and above ground farm biodiversity doesn't happen in spite of its spiritual foundation, but because of it. Mm. Um, Is that, is that a good characterization of your thesis? Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. No. Yeah. Exactly. Um, like the I, spiritually is it, the spiritual approach to agriculture is essential to its efficacy. Yeah. Indeed. I think um, they're kind of one in the same, or they kind of beget each other. Uh, mm-hmm. Or um, yeah. So I th- I think you know to to establish this link. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's, that's the thing is that the spirituality is not entirely necessary because biodynamics now is a pretty codified system of practices. So one could be biodynamic certified without necessarily being so spiritually involved. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but for me, I mean, the spirituality, to me, the spirituality is really represents kind of a deeper uh, fundamental kind of shift in perception that to me feels like, like the the requisite shift that we as humans need to make to kind of correct our relationship with nature or realign ourselves, um, you know, with, with the living world. Um, so this is what I was getting at is that uh, so much of the, the speak about biodynamics is about whether it's efficacious or not. And, you know, it's kind of, kind of the lack of measurability around its its preparations is often is often you know the source of of its discounting because uh, um, people say ah you can't measure the effects it's no better than normal compost teas so biodynamics is uh, is 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 nonsense um, but to me that that kind of measurability is is besides the point because so much else stems from the spiritual connection that 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 leads to a kind of a, a fruitful life promoting agricultural practice if mm. that makes sense yeah well it's interesting I, I mean at the same time that you're saying that there have been now some recent studies that i just read some peer-reviewed papers that have been put out about you know the preps um and mm. and studying their efficacy and have found some really incredible findings you know it just huh. took 100 years <laughs> for yes. somebody to do the study you know it's yes. almost more that it hasn't been attempted to be measured rather than it's unmeasurable you know yes. i think in a lot of cases it's been so dismissed or discounted that people didn't even see it as worthy of trying to you know do do any research and to some extent it seems like i mean i could be wrong about that but yeah um yeah but, no, no exactly yeah. um I, I, and i no, please go ahead. 
No, no, I, 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 the only thing I was going to say is I have a couple of papers that I will link to ah. um, in, in the show notes for this, or, or at least on the episode website on beyondorganicwine.com. Uh, so, yeah. that, you know, that's there as well as, you know, with your permission, this paper as well. Yes, yes, of course. This paper is open access as, as far as I'm concerned. Um, yeah. But yeah, to your point, I, I, I agree. I mean, it's, and that's really nice to hear that kind of the, the scientific uh, verifiability is catching up, but I think the efficacy of biodynamic practices has been long noted anecdotally. I mean, I take quite seriously um, the the story of, I believe it was your interview with, I'm forgetting his name, but from Tablas Creek that you just released. And oh yeah, you, Jason. Yeah, exactly. And the story, the story of the uh, uh, of of the 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 severe reaction that one of his employees had to one of the sprays. I mean, that oh, right that was there. a Jason. Yeah, that was, well, I think I mentioned that story while talking to Jason, but yeah, that was Derek Trowbridge. Yeah. Ah, who, exactly. Excuse me. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, a really good example. But also, I mean, I think, I think what, what, uh, what the observations at Tablas Creek that Jason mentioned were they just tasted their wines made from the different blocks, some that were just farmed organically and some mm-hmm. that were farmed biodynamically. And in blind tastings, the whole staff, essentially preferred the biodynamically farmed okay. wines. Uh-huh. And, exactly. and so then they just switched the whole vineyard. <laughs> At that point, yeah. they're like, well, I don't know. <laughs> I think that's exactly. measurable enough for our, our yeah. purposes, you know? <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. So, and yeah. Uh, yeah, so there, there is some fun stuff like that. And I, I, I take seriously that kind of stuff as well. I also, you know, I, I think if we can start down this path with, your definition of spirituality, like to, to dig in deeper to this, I think is really important. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Um, so where I'm coming at with my lens of spirituality, um, is not so much, I I think spirituality is often, is often thought about as this kind of, you know, far off ethereal kind of astral connection, uh, to planes that are beyond this living world, and I think I think an openness to this kind of far outness is is important and may well be part of it. But to me, what's what spirituality means is to be is to kind of to be here now and really this tangible connection to the living world around us. Um, to look at a tree, not just as a as you know, this, this thing, but to really recognize that this is this miraculous, in, immensely complex living being, being, and not just a single being, but you know, that intimately tied with kind of this expanding infinity of relations below ground and above. Um, so just to recognize that immensity, the grandeur, the magic of the living world around us, and to really you know feel that from a subjective perspective um that's kind of what i'm i'm getting at with in in my speak of spirituality in this paper which i think is very different from how it's normally conceived um and i think that that kind of typical conception of that is kind of this woo woo far off fantasy of of other worlds is is what leads to its um yeah to people casting it aside and not and not and not paying much attention to it or not taking it seriously yeah i mean it it's it's really interesting you bring up the the 
and the language that you use, the miraculousness of the tree and like this incredibly complex thing, this, the, and the web and interconnection of things, uh, is that I, I hear that in what you're saying about spirituality. Yes. Um, yeah, yes. That's, that's very, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, a it's, it's, it's more, yeah, it's a, it's a recognition that, that we are kind of alive in the, in, in, in this strange, amazing existence, it's strange to find ourselves alive here. And I think to come from that place and, and really, really, really connect with with our our living essence and the essence of the world around us, I think you know naturally imbues us into caring or induces us into caring relationships with the living world. I mean, if you have a sense of that that miracle, how could you not but but want to care for the living world? Because recognizing that you know, the, ma- the, the, the living nature of the world around you is also is the same source of your living nature. Um, so I see it as all kind of interconnected and yes, one in the same. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I, I, I think in, in, I mean, in your paper, in making the case between spirituality and ecologically sound agriculture, like biodynamics, you make the point uh, that many of these Western forms of agriculture quote, are but recent echoes of long-integrated, spiritually imbued understandings of nature found in other cultures. Now viewed through the lens of scientific study, such traditional knowledge is confirmed to correlate with biological and ecological principles. And I'm wondering, you know, that becomes a theme that you explore, and I'm wondering if you could give some examples of that. Um, Because that, I mean, that's what I hear as we're talking about spirituality. I hear this sense of the fact that we grew out of this earth, you know, and we grew originally as ecological beings, you know, inextricably tied to our environment. And it's only been recently that we see ourselves as separate. Yes. And that, right. Spirituality has been given this patina of sort of spacey, you know, (laughs) far out things, but it's really this deep, to me, another way to think of it is the opposite. It's like this deep grounding in a complex world that we are inextricably tied to. And yes. the sort of intuitive understandings that come when you are reconnected and reimmersed in that ecology as yes. a living being. Um, so I wonder if you can talk about some of those examples, like some of the traditional, you know, the the, the way that these spiritually imbued understandings grow out of these sort of traditional knowledges and, and biological, um, be, you know, become these currently scientifically understood biological and ecological principles. Yeah, sure. Um, there's actually a very recent uh, example I just came across um, from Robin Wall Kimmer, uh, the author of Braiding Sweetgrass. Um, she just wrote a beautiful piece online. I'm happy to send you the link um, about the three sisters uh, form of agriculture. Oh. oh, I love, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's really beautifully done. Um, but it's exactly this. She, she, she was exploring the long tradition of, of, of corn cultivation and the reverence uh, that, uh, that Native Americans said, say held for corn. Um, and just that, you know, through their relationship with their corn and through their kind of, you know, you know, intuitive, 
ecological understanding, they came up with, with essentially an intercropping system of, of growing corn amongst uh, leguminous beans, amongst pumpkins, all of whom work very synchronously to kind of, you know, mutually benefit each other so that each grows um, well. Uh, and this kind of agriculture, actually, um, I'm, I'm working on another piece right now that talks about this, is that, you know, this kind of intuitively led them to, this style of agriculture led them to like no-till agriculture. They, like, they weren't often plowing their land or working their land, uh, which led to the, you know, the, the, the saving of their soil organic matter relative to when the European colonizers came in with plows and readily washed a lot of that topsoil away. Mm. Um, as, yeah, it's a very, it's a very beautiful example I just came across. So, yeah, I, th I think another example you give is, um, is the sense of being part of if, am I getting that right? A sense of being part of a bigger whole? Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. So this is this is really uh, important to biodynamic thinking. Actually, uh, this kind of farm as organism approach. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the, the farm as organism idea is is exactly this that the the understanding that that nature works uh, as kind of as you know one overarching organism, and each of us kind of individuals is is playing our part as an organ uh, that supports the, the wider functionality of, the, of this larger organism. Hmm. Um, yeah, so bringing this to the farm level, uh, biodynamics you know, naturally uh, kind of incorporates biodiversity on the farm in consideration of their farm as a singular organism. Um, so that looks like, especially applying this to Dornach, this looks like Yes, having the vineyards, but also having vegetable gardens and flower gardens and fruit trees scattered around. They have a diversity of animals. Uh, they have you know, native forest kind of on all four sides of the farm. Um, and it's in this diversity uh, and in kind of the, the tying in of these life ways so that they're mutually supporting that that kind of creates this overall wellness uh, of the farm. Uh, and it's not only that this, this is a kind of a, it is kind of a self-contained organism, but it's also of course connected to the wider ecology. It's connected to the wider human community in biodynamics, especially it's, it's all connected to the cosmos, uh, and cosmic energies. Um, so yeah, this is kind of, I think is kind of foundation foundational to the spiritual sense of oneness is that we understand that what we do on the ground is, intimately tied with everything around us and everything, you know, beyond us. Hmm. Is, so if I'm, if I'm creating a list in my head, you, if, you know, it was because I wanted you to talk about some of the crucial features of spiritual agricultural approaches. I, what I've heard so far is the sense of caring that becomes imbued in the kind of farming that you do, like a, a deep sense of care, like caretaking, yeah. caring for, yes. um, as well as connection with, um, and you know, like this inextricable connection and overlapping, um, 
I guess I don't even know how to put it <laughs> overlapping um, functionalities and benefits and yes. uh, symbio symbioses that happen uh, within these connections. Are there other crucial features of, of spiritual agricultural approaches? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think this, this notion of care is super important. Um, and yeah, I have to give credit to uh, a few researchers that I came across um, while researching this paper. One is Anna Piggott. Uh, another is Maria Puig de, de la Bella Casa. Uh, and one is Anna Krzywazinska. Uh, I'm sure among others, these three researchers really talk about uh, and kind of define this notion of care. Um, and the idea of care is to is kind of actively attending to other beings around us, uh, and and you know paying paying attention to beings kind of as they are. So uh, you know you know especially say in conventional agriculture, a lot of our decisions are made kind of from our anthropocentric kind of human point of view. Um, Whereas, you know, when we say recognize the value of the living beings around us, then, you know, we're motivated to attend to them with, with kind of this caring notion to, to nurture them uh, as, as they, you know, in a way that supports their own innate, you know, health and wellness. Um, so, for example, what this looks like in soil care, it's, it's really paying attention to soil microbiology and how the soil food web functions. And then the role of the farmer is to, is to support it, the, uh, those life waste from taking place. It's supporting fungi and bacteria and plants to all interact in, in you know, the, the harmonious way that they naturally do so, rather than kind of jumping in and plowing because we feel we need to aerate the soil. We feel that we need to let water percolate better. Um, it's kind of taking the opposite stance where we've kind of let, you know, the beings of our farm speak for themselves and then do our best to care for them how they want to be cared for, uh, if hmm. that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I mean, so it's, you know, in terms of caring, it's, there's this sense of valuing the non-human in, yeah. in the same way that you would care for the human uh, in the same yes. way that you would value the human. How... What is the importance of spirituality in informing our human, non-human agricultural relationships? Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I really think it, it's this. As you say, it's 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 kind of reorienting our value systems, uh, where where we you know engage with the world by with the sense of value for for life itself. Um, and, you know, this gets tricky, especially when we're running businesses, right, where there's a very clear. <laughs> well, that's the next question. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. When there's a very clear monetary value system. Um, but, yeah, I think I think really the fundamental difference, as I said, if spirituality is, you know, coming from this this sense of oneness and the sense of the miracle of the living world around us, um, then in our agricultural practices, it looks like kind of you know, valuing life for its own sake uh, um, and, and placing a high value on the well-being and the flourishing of the life around us. When you say for its own sake, you're contrasting that to the alternative. Could you 
sort of characterize the alternative? Yeah, so I, I suppose the direct alternative is for either it's it's utility or it's it's monetary value. Yeah. Um, I mean, for example, it's a pretty it's a pretty stark contrast at Dornock. So Ansi's Dornock, which is which is the vineyard that I'm referencing in my paper, um, it's this really beautiful, diverse vineyard. That's uh, if you're not familiar with the landscape of South Tyrol, it's this beautiful stark valley with this flat valley bottom that rises to these high mountain mountain peaks on either side. Um, so Dornock is kind of up on the hillside overlooking the valley. And Dornock, you look at Dornock, it's this beautiful kind of diverse, you know, interspersed forest with vineyards, with gardens. And then you look down to the valley floor below and all you see is a patchwork of straight lines and, <laughs> you know, single species of trees, uh, most of which are uh, apple trees or, you know, straight lines of vines uh, mm. that go as far as the eye can see. Um, yeah, so you see this pretty stark contrast of a place that, you know, places a high value on, a, on the flourishing of, of, of life for its own sake versus that, that values plants based on their, their productivity and their marketability, um, which, you know, when, when, when beings are, if you take a tree as a living being and put it in a straight line, and you're extracting all it has to give just for that extraction. I mean, that's that's a pretty um, kind of dystopian, kind of enslaving style of relating to other beings, which is very different from if you approach the world as you know a living place um, and, and beings as living beings that are valuable for their own sake. Hmm. Yeah, that's a really stark characterization. Yeah. And I'm I'm gonna quote you. Um, you say the profit motive, which is in, in your paper, uh, which is greatly encouraged by market demand and tempts the prioritization of immediate gain, has a potential to strongly influence the organization and practices of a farm business. We see through the history of agriculture how prioritization of income has shaped conventional farm businesses and the resultant externalization of ecological costs. Yeah. Um, and you just gave a really good example of that. Um, can you sort of describe also you know expanding on what you were just saying uh, and and we can kind of move to Ansys Dornach um, as a as an example of this but how this idea of the farm as an organism works and and what are some of the things that you've seen from your observation yeah yeah of course um yeah so the farm as organism uh, kind of as I described it as a concept earlier, uh, is really beautiful in practice. And it's something that, that you've, you've kind of spoken a, a, a lot on with your guests in your podcast um, previously. Uh, so the farm as organism, uh, I mean, it looks like diversity, uh, yeah. right? So, yeah. so for example, I kind of, in the paper, I kind of, you know, do this walk through the vineyard. Uh, yeah. to, to, to show to show kind of the, the, this you know cyclical ecology of the farm as organism. So um, what it looks like is is you know living soil uh, where you have your fungi and your bacteria and all the soil organisms working together uh, that gives rise to uh, a diversity of plant cover in the vineyard rows. So like at Dordernock, for example, you see a great 
array of diversity in the rows. There's no bare ground anywhere. It's all covered. And there's a mix of grasses and flowering plants and uh, wild herb, aromatic herbs. You know, it's just kind of this bursting diversity of life under the vines. Uh, and then, of course, there's the vines themselves, uh, of which there's, there's a great diversity. Um, and then there's the surrounding forest. Uh, and then, you know, this is, it, it, you know, it's not all happening at once. There's also a temporality to this, but say after harvest at Dornach, uh, they have a pair of cows and a pair of donkeys and a little herd of sheep that all get their run through the vineyards, uh, <laughs> once the grapes are off, of course. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, they are just happy as can be walking through the rows, of course, munching down that diverse plant cover, dropping their manure everywhere and stomping it in through the rows. Um, so, and then of course there's the, uh, there's, you know, wild animals like birds flitting around. Uh, so yeah, you can kind of see how, how each of these organisms is kind of playing its own role to feed into the wellness of the other organisms, say the animals walking through the vines um, after harvest, they are munching on the plant cover, uh, which is servicing their own needs, right? They're, they're getting this diverse array of rich, of rich uh, forage. And simultaneously by them being, being cared for, they're dropping manure uh, into the rows and fertilizing the vines uh, and fertilizing the soil microorganisms which are, uh, which are then of course giving rise to more plant cover, more healthy vines. And then for the next year will be more feed for the animals. And you see how, how you know, care, for, care for each organism is kind of built into this kind of you know, circular system um, in which care for every being is taken care of just by, just, just by being themselves within the system. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's lovely. Um, now, there are some realities to operating a spiritual farm in a materialistic world. Yeah. We sort of, we've talked about some of those, um, you know, by email and everything, but yeah, I mean, this is, you know, it's real, real stuff. And I'd love you to get into some of these questions that you've been asking and, and where these compromises, where these places of friction happen. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you can you can probably hear and how I've already been speaking is I'm a I'm a bit of a romantic, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know I really I really had this vision that you know if you had a diverse enough ecological system that there would be you know this 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 system of checks and balances in place that would really you know, keep everything at bay, keep everything in balance. There wouldn't be so many disease outbreaks. There would, uh, pests would be kept in control. And I, I, you know, so I was really hopeful coming into this vineyard that, that, you know, I would come into this highly developed kind of farm ecology and would see this kind of, you know, romantic utopian balance. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> I learned the hard way that, that, uh, that, you know, uh, mother nature, uh, you know, <laughs> says differently. Um, this, this, this year in South Tyrol was a really, really, and I guess this goes for most of Italy in general was a really, really wet season. 
um, all through the, the late spring, there was serious rain, um, which of course was at prime time to, uh, to hit the, the vines with, with powdery and downy mildew. Um, and so this hit really hard. So I arrived at door knock in July and again, had this rosy vision coming in and literally week one, I see, uh, Patrick, who's the owner of on door knock, Patrick Uccelli. I see him out on the sprayer and of course they're organic and biodynamic certified. So this was a formulation of copper and sulfur, but still he, the, the conditions were the rainy conditions were forced him to be on that sprayer two, three, four times a week sometimes. Wow. And uh, yeah, it was really, and it was kind of jarring for me because um, you know, I, I was coming to a place that of course cares so much about the farm ecology. Uh, but then simultaneously I'm seeing them blasting the fields with, with fungicides. And I, I, I'm not the biggest expert on this, but I looked into just copper a little bit. And I know that copper accumulates in the soil and can be quite toxic to soil microorganisms. So all of a sudden this paradox emerged uh, that, that challenged my romantic view. Uh, and it really made me think about, you know, this, this, this strange tension that there is between, between, you know, on one end, highly valuing life for its own sake, while operating your farm in a business where, where, you know, the value has to be monetary for the whole system to keep functioning. Um, and I, I, so in exploring this topic and of course, speaking with the farmers and, and getting their view of things, um, I saw that, that it, it really becomes kind of this necessary compromise, um, where as Patrick expressed, uh, you know, this is, this is his point of view, but he says, you know, here we, we don't do nature. Nature is, you know, the untouched forest out there. He said, we're working, you know, in a, in a highly, you know, kind of compromised landscape as it is the fact that this native forest has been cleared for vineyards, Mm -hmm. uh, all already is, uh, is a serious, serious compromise for the landscape. So he says, we're already working in a compromised landscape. So, you know, interventions are necessary to keep this whole system running and to keep the system running requires the income that's coming from the grapes. So, so it's this compromise between, between prioritizing your marketable crop and prioritizing the lives of your farm. And I think what Doorknock does really beautifully, it's not at all that they were just recklessly spraying. It was, it was highly calculated and sure. they express, yeah. And, and they expressed that they weren't, that they weren't, you know, glad to be spraying the vines. Um, but they feel that it's kind of, you know, uh, the, the necessary compromise to make so that they can keep their business operating so that their business can continue to steward the land and all of the other ways that they do, as well as, you know, their engagement with the surrounding community, their, you know, their goal is to, is to, you know, have their philosophy bleed out into the larger food system and make a change locally and hopefully further out. And so unfortunately, you know, this is kind of a short-term compromise that they have to make to spray the vines, to get their crop to the to, to harvest. But yeah. o- overall, it, it's a consideration of the net benefit, I suppose. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, that's that sounds like a really great nuanced 
explanation of something that most people, and I'm so glad you chose spraying as the compromise issue because this is not seen as a compromise in most viticulture right now, even organic or biodynamic viticulture. I mean, spraying is considered just part of viticulture, like an, uh, you know, inextricable part of it. And I'm, you know, it's, this is a big thing that I'm focusing on now, which is like getting people to question that, getting people to ask, is it a necessary part? Is it, do we have to spray? And what if we didn't, like, what would we, what would that change about the way that we farm grapes? Yeah. And I know um, Dornoff is growing peewees, right? They're, so they yes. are uh, not all, but some, right? So they are trying to make that change uh, as much as the market allows for them to be able to spray less. Ex- yes, ex- exactly. So, um, so yeah, Dornock really prides themselves on growing peewee varieties, uh, which are you know hybrid varieties between Vitis vinifera and uh, I think I believe most of theirs are North American crosses. Um, so yeah, this is this is part of their 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 goal is that they understand uh, something that you've talked so much about uh, that you know Vitis vinifera is a non-native grape variety that they're trying to grow in a very different con- set of conditions from where it evolved. And so naturally it's more intensive to keep it alive and healthy uh, in this different ecology. So they're really excited about this new wave of, of peewee varieties. Uh, and South Tyrol actually is quite a rich uh, peewee area. I think it's one of the few regions in Italy where peewees are even allowed legally at all. Um <laughs> Well, which is that yeah that that did change i'll just throw in a couple caveats here in 2021 oh, the the eu did uh expand to allow peewees in dops because huh. of climate change so they realized you know if we're going to actually adapt to climate change with the wine industry we need to allow these things so that's that happened in oh, 2021 but yeah, I mean, I don't know that most people realize it was illegal in European DOPs to use yeah. any kind of hybrid. Like, it was literally yes. like pure blood vinifera only yep. allowed um, yep. for the last, you know, whatever eighty years. Um, yes. So, and then I, I think now you're saying vinifera isn't native, but I think vinifera is native to there. I mean, there's definitely varieties, or at least it's been there long enough to consider itself native. Um, you know, it, it, it probably is, is doing poorly in that area, even though it's from there, because of just years of cloning and using the same yes. varieties uh, that have yes. been around for hundreds of years rather than breeding new and, and breeding, you know, breeding, stirring that genetic gene pool and letting the grapes adapt. Um, for, and, for sure. And, and also because of globalization, because we brought, you know, now grapes have been, been traded around the planet and there are, you know, downy mildew wasn't a thing in Europe until uh, we brought over North American varieties yes. of grapes with downy spores on them. So, yes. Uh, just, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, we've, we've forced them into a, <laughs> an, a, a need to adapt. Um, yeah. But yeah. Yeah. I just yeah. wanted to yeah. spell that out so it wasn't, we weren't spreading misinformation. There. Yeah. No, no, no. Thank you. And l- look, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm young and I'm not the biggest expert on this. So I'm, you know, I'm still very much in my learning process. So no, thank you. Uh, uh, of course. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Well, no, of course. And, um, please. And in addition to, well, I mean, did you want to wrap up what you were saying or, or did, was there, were you finished? 
Yeah, uh, sure. Um, yeah, so I think the the peewees are exactly this. It's 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 this recognition that you know our climate is rapidly adapting and conditions are rapidly evolving, and so you know for sustainability heading into the future, you know uh, breeding new genetics is a super important part of this. Um, and I guess to the point of compromise, this is an interesting point of compromise for them as well, because uh, as they expressed to me, they're fully on board with peewees. And, you know, ultimately their goal, I think, is to grow 100% peewees. But as we know, peewees and hybrid varieties are have, have a tough time breaking into kind of the old school wine market. And so they're caught in this interesting in-between where they're slowly prioritizing peewees more and more and trying to educate about peewees more and more to build awareness. But simultaneously, it's it's the Pinot Noir that's bringing in the money to, to run the business. So again, it's this strange point of compromise where operating a business with, you know, uh, it's kind of trying to fit a square peg in a round hole and you're just, you're doing your best to make it work, but there's kind of two fundamentally different systems at work uh, that kind of force these compromises to happen. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and in terms of compromises, I mean, another one that's maybe, I mean, like I said, I really love that you used spraying as the example because it's not even seen as a compromise for most people. But one that I think is that we could talk about um, is birds, for example, and, and what that means for a vineyard. And, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm considering, I, I mean, I, yeah, well, I'm considering uh, planting a vineyard in more in your region of the world of the East Coast, not Italy. I, I mean, I'd love to <laughs> do one in Italy. Um, you need some but, Italian lessons. I'm happy to help. <laughs> I've been working. I've been working on it. Um, I've, I've only been to the South. Well, like, well, from, from Rome down, basically, including mm-hmm. Sicily, but the north oh, beautiful. I can't wait yeah oh please yeah please come it's fantastic uh, oh my gosh i can't wait but yeah. no i mean and just in thinking you know on the east coast of the u.s there's it's you know the, like i don't know globally how if people realize it's sort of like trying to grow chickens in the jungle where there's just so many things <laughs> that want to eat your chickens you know like <laughs> like yeah. i mean you know, there's raccoons, there's bears, there's like, yes. in addition to <laughs> birds, there's deer, you know, and these are all like, some of these are big, like a bear can, if a bear yeah. wants your grapes, a bear can get your grapes. It doesn't matter if you have a <laughs> 10 foot deer fence or whatever, like, and these are realities. And so it's like how to manage for that in, in a system where you're trying to be productive and, and, you know, make a living. Um, yeah. yeah, this is like a real a real question. I mean, it's a big question and something that, you know, I think everybody listening who is involved in this at any level understands. Um, and yet, you know, the place where I want to grow grapes, I love because of all that wildlife, like, like you said, it's that, you know, I'm drawn to that place spiritually because it is so biodiverse and so beautiful. And yeah. the last thing I want to do is kick those beautiful creatures out of their home <laughs> because I want to play, you know, because I want to grow <laughs> some grapes there. And so it is, I mean, this is probably the fundamental question at the heart of the, the farm design that I'm working on is how to 
incorporate new more biodiversity without and and make it economically viable without losing what's already there without excluding the 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 non-humans that are already there um yeah and, and you know answering that has a million forms <laughs> um yeah. i mean there's because yeah because i mean the there are simple things but they're very exclusive they're very like you know they're very harsh um yes and yeah then, I'm... then it becomes a nuanced complicated answer to how how do you do that yeah yeah of course and it's totally an open question and it's something that i've been really grappling with you know, i mean even through this paper um and that's the thing is like, it, I mean, maybe I, you know, I, I was discounting my romantic view earlier, but I still wonder if, if there are ways to continue to kind of maximize diversity without, as you say, having to sacrifice so much. Um, I mean, I think your idea of saying planting more than you need, having sacrifice zones, or at least, you know, uh, you know, having the, the the predatorial bird calls around or where, you know, it's not this entire harsh kind of violent exclusion, but there's kind of, there's really intelligent, creative ways where we can still have our little, our little haven, but still, still have this integrated ecology. Um, yeah. But yeah, as you say, it's a really big, I think, I think really kind of boundary pushing topic that will, that will really change how we see and do agriculture in the future. Yeah, and I, as important as that is, and I, I do think it's really important, I agree with you about that. I, I also would love you to talk about some of what you found out in the course of writing this paper about how like a spiritual farm might actually take better care of the humans as well as the non-humans in, in that system. Yeah. Yeah, so this is the thing is, um, is that it, 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 it's not, it doesn't quite align if, if one creates this beautiful, diverse farm of which, you know, humans aren't really a part or even conceive of it that way, because of course humans are an integral part of the farm system. I mean, the, the kind of the farm as organism and all these kind of intertangling, you know, uh, you know, organism life ways, that like that doesn't happen without the human hand. Uh, so of course, like the, the the farm system is kind of fundamentally human, and so the humans are they serve as one of these critical organs in the farm body, uh, perhaps even even so central as the heart. Um, and so of course, the the health and wellness of the humans is part and parcel of the health and wellness of the farm. Um, so yeah, door knock in that way. Um, you know, implemented a lot of really beautiful business practices that actively promote the well-being of the employees and the interns on their farm. Um, so one example. Yeah. Please. Yeah, please. Um, so one example is these daily farm lunches. Uh, and so every day at noon, work stops dead. It doesn't matter where you are, what you're doing the church bell down the street strikes noon and you drop everything and head to the house for lunch. Um, and this was a kind of a non-negotiable 90 minute rest period every single day. And like, as, as you know, and as any farmer knows, I mean, farming gets intense and things are stressful. Things have to get done. 
Uh, and it's very easy to sacrifice on, on this time for personal well-being in order to, to get your to-do list done. But at Doorknock, that is absolutely non-negotiable and you, you get in trouble if you show up late. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, take, it's taken very seriously. Um, but yeah, these communal lunches would be these beautiful, really feasts um, that really showed off the abundance coming off the farm. So there was you know, always meat that had been raised on the farm and butchered on the farm. Um, Yosef, who is uh, Carolina's grandfather, uh, was this really, really sweet, old uh, kind of mountain, Tyrolean mountain man. Uh, and he had this amazing old cellar under the house where he was curing his own speck and making his own, his own sauerkraut and had his table wine. And so there was always, you know, a slab of this homemade speck and sauerkraut and table wine, vegetables from the garden, fruit from the fruit trees, fresh cheeses from the goats. Um, and it was a time when everyone would get together. I mean, during harvest time, this was 15 people coming together all at once to sit and just enjoy uh, this, this convivial relaxation time um, every single day. Um, so this was kind of, yeah, and so to not only nourish our bodies with the most amazing food that we've played a role in in, 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 in growing, but also, you know, to nourish the, the social culture of, of the farm and bring everybody together as, as friends and family, really. Hmm. Yeah, it's, yeah, I mean, is that year-round or is that just at harvest? Uh, this was year round. I mean, so the size of the lunch expands during harvest for sure. Right, but this, right, right. <laughs> um, That's fantastic. Yeah. But, but yeah, yeah, this was, this was all year. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I just spent, uh, September in, in Vermont with La Garagista and, and that was one of the things that really impressed me as well was these, I mean, it wasn't, uh, you know, at the strike of the church bell, but sometime around, you know, 1230 to 130, we all took a break that lasted at least 90 minutes, some days longer yes. um, involved, you know, like you said, like local, you know, veg that was grown often right next to where we were eating, um, you know, and wines that were grown uh, that we were often highlighting what we were working with that day, yes. um, and, you know, from previous vintages and, and then, you know, allowed time for short naps <laughs> before <Yeah>. returning <laughs> um just that's very... a luxury we did not have that's, that's <laughs> impressive <laughs> oh that's too bad you gotta you gotta talk to them, <laughs> give, them some, give some feedback um yeah it's uh i mean and it really does change the experience of work in general like you you know it's it's amazing it's really like at times you're like oh man i kind of i feel like i need to get back to work but then like yeah. when you know what i mean like it almost feels like that's a an addiction that you need to break in a sense <laughs> not in, in a healthy way you know i mean not like obviously yes. the work needs to get done but there's a yeah. very human human quality to that practice um yeah and, no it, exactly it, it kind of it kind of ties ties you know your rhythms to the rhythms of the farm it's easy we have this kind of it's common for us to have this kind of work-life balance, this work-life separation. Um, but maybe this is, I, I hope this is not just particular to Doorknock, but really life and work become kind of one in the same, but not in a bad way. It, it's, it's where, you know, life and work are happening at the same time, but it's all, it's all part of this beautiful process of nourishing both the land and, and our human selves. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Well, mm. 
Where are there any final things? I, I, there's a quote I want to from your paper that I would love to use as a as a, a final quote. But I, I would also love to hear from you if there's anything that we've left out that you find really important. Sure. Um, I mean, I know we've left out a lot. Like it's a forty page plus paper, but. Um, yeah, and and your thoughts are much bigger than the paper as well. So, and your experience <laughs> at Dornach is much bigger. Um, so you know anything? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so really, really, just for me, I think the the key and what really inspired this paper, um, and what ultimately came out of it is that it really feels like, um, you know, r- repairing our our nature with. Our relationship with nature through our agriculture, I, I think, begins from from this fundamental, you know, shift in our own heads. Like that's the thing is, it's like a really, it's a it's a subjective shift that that kind of needs to happen. So it's kind of beyond beyond codification or methodologies. Mm-hmm. Um, I speak about this in my paper um, about addressing the, uh, an apparent kind of issue with certification. Um, I know that, you know, say biodynamic certification has a lot of benefits for many farmers and there's many reasons to doing it. Um, but for example, at Dornach, the biodynamic certification actually for them isn't, you know, isn't the most Im- important thing in terms of representing their spiritual relationship with their land. Um, there's a lot of practical reasons that they go for certification. I mean, it, it helps their marketability. It's, it's a way kind of now in the name of your podcast, beyond organic uh, kind of certification of their practices that, that speaks a little more to their values. Um, but, but for them, like really the important thing is the, the practices on their land and certification can often get wrapped up in these, in these, and these, I don't know, these metrics and like they, they shared with me that when the biodynamic certifier comes, much of that time is spent in the office going over records and, and papers and, uh, and it's very little of that time is spent actually out on the farm going around and seeing the biodynamic farm organism at work, uh, which I think says something, uh, you know, something about the certification that can't really touch that deeper spiritual core that reorients, you know, how we, how we see nature, how we relate to our land in intuitive and caring ways. Um, so yeah, to me, kind of the crux of the paper, the crux of the thesis is that it's this deeper spiritual shift that I think is really, is really needed in our world today, especially facing all the crises. Uh, it seems that a lot of it has to do with our, our fundamental disconnection from from nature so to me it's this really it's this kind of spiritual shift uh that comes from the inside uh that that um that is really important to, to kind of you know start start working into our lives heading into our future yeah that's really well said yeah do you know have you read um because i know you quoted him uh have you read the book the biology of wonder is this Andreas Weber? Yes. Okay. So 
interestingly enough, um, I haven't read this book. I've heard you mention it before, so it's on my to-do list. Me but too. Andreas Weber. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I, I've started okay. it. I know, I'm really excited about it. I can't, but I, I haven't added it to my like recommended list just because I haven't finished it, and I feel like I need to actually read the whole thing before I get, you know fully endorse it. But I, already <laughs> the ideas are are you know revolutionary enough that it's, yeah, I can definitely say it's worth checking out. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, it's on my to-do list because Andres Weber is actually he's uh, he was a professor of mine this past year. Uh, he came and taught oh. a class to us oh. this year. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> how was that? Uh, amazing, really, really amazing. What was uh, the class called? Uh, it's called Enlivenment. Ah, so um, that was the name of the class. Wow. Yes, and that's a name of I. I don't think it's a full book, but I think it's a paper. Uh, that yeah, written. yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, so yeah, I actually got to know him a little bit, and I mean, it's it's amazing. And uh, if, you know, for different students have different reactions to it because, for example, one day he has us go and sit with a tree and kind of have a conversation with a tree. <laughs> and uh, for a lot of students, you know, that turns them away. They're like, "Why am I talking to this tree? This is dumb." Uh, but but the, the you know the point his his thesis is exactly this that like about uh, re enlivening our world and really taking seriously that the world around us is is creative and living and and you know and I don't know about conscious but likely sentient and and feeling in some way uh, yeah. so it's about engaging with the world in that way um, yeah no he's he's a really amazing man yeah it's a, a yeah I think. It's one of those great, um, I, I think the reason it, I, I find it so important is, especially in the context of what we're talking about, is it sort of bridges that gap between, you know, once and for all between the spiritual and the scientific in a way. Mm -hmm. If that if that's a fair characterization, I don't know. But, you know, okay, I'll get to the end of the book and let you know for sure. But, <laughs> Yeah. Um, but it, you know, it really does, it almost is a re understanding of, of science, like, because it is, he is fully grounded in science. And so it's not like you could discount him, as, you know, or dismiss it as like the spiritual woo woo thing, yes. which, you know, like, again, we're not dismissing the spiritual here at all. But uh, if you were inclined to, it would be really hard to dismiss him on those grounds, because it's, it's coming from a hard science, like every principle that he's talking about is built from just a scientific yes. biological understanding of nature and the way nature works and, and yes. causes us when looked at from this perspective to reevaluate our own understanding of like how, you know, <laughs> how it works and, <laughs> and how yes. in our, yeah, that part of it, um, as you were saying, like the, that, yeah. So, yeah, 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 no, no, exactly. He, uh, because yeah, he, he is a trained biologist himself. Right. And he, he just, right. he expressed to us in class how, how kind of uh, uh, how dark it got to be studying life by killing it because ev everything they were studying were these specimens that were brought into their lab out of their natural context to be dissected, <laughs> to be understood, <laughs> right. which, in which he just recognized the fundamental paradox of, of trying to understand life by killing it. Um, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, well, yeah, which I think is really indicative of the problem is that, there's a tendency to to want to you know extract things for study out of their living context when what we are what we are is constantly in relation with 
everything around us and, and inseparable from those relationships. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, yep. Well said. Yes. Well, and the other thing that's well said is this quote that you sort of end on, if I may, uh, the transition mm-hmm. from economic to biophilic value systems is challenging and puts farmers in the middle of difficult ethical dilemmas. But it is an unavoidable requirement as we attempt to reorient our culture away from anthropocentrism and back toward our place within the web of life on earth. Mm-hmm. A spiritual shift that understands the human as part of the web of life and understands our wellness as the wellness of the whole is the critical first step in repairing this relationship and leading us into healthier life-promoting interbeing with our land. Mm-hmm. I think that's really well, really well said. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think it, it, this, this just tries to sum up that of course, you know, as, uh, we have one foot in, in the, the modern capitalist economy kind of necessarily. Um, right. and yeah. And so, uh, so it's, this is the cause of the tension, uh, between, between valuing life and, and valuing money. But it's it's that friction that I think illuminates the problems and 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 forces us into into positions where we have to have to rethink really fundamentally rethink how we're doing things. Like your question earlier, like do do we have to spray? That's a kind right. of a common yeah a commonly accepted canon of viticulture, but is is it the case? Uh, so I think this this friction you know forces us into the questions that will ultimately lead us back to or not necessarily back to, but, but two more life-promoting ways of being with our land. Lovely. Well, thank you for yeah. writing this paper and thank you for sharing it and for sharing it with me, but also, you know, I will be sharing it. And so I thank, thank you in advance for allowing <laughs> me to share this with, with everyone who desires to read it. Um, yeah. Really such, such good stuff and uh, highly recommend for everyone. And cool. uh, is there any, you know, do you want people to get in touch with you or anything like that or? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Um, you can reach me. I don't, I'm still, <laughs> I'm a newly graduated student, so I don't have any official website or anything. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but you're super welcome to, uh, to reach out to me on Instagram. My handle is cam grows. Cam grows. Um, yeah. Yeah. And please feel free to reach out there. Um, and yeah, I'm happy to share with my thesis or for you to share your thesis. Like I said, it's open access. Um, and no, I really, I really appreciate your, your time and being willing to read such a paper. I know it's, <laughs> it's, you can't just do it over, over morning coffee. It's a bit of a read. Um, but really I appreciate your support, uh, and, and your, your willingness to allow me to share. Um, it's really, it's really such a pleasure. Ah, my pleasure too. Well, I, I and I'll be honest, I, I put it off for a while because I, you know, I mean, just to, I, I wanted to sit down and read it at once. And then I started reading it and I was like, oh, wow, this is, this keeps going, but I can't stop. <laughs> and so I kind of, my whole morning got rearranged because I, I'm like, I, I had to finish it. It was, I mean, so I mean, wow. that's, a, that's a compliment. It was definitely like, yeah. once I got into it, I was like, oh, this is fantastic. I like, wow. I, I want to keep reading. That is um, really a high compliment, Adam. So really, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. Well, th- thank you again. And uh, we'll, we'll, I, good luck. Yeah, you're you're still wrapping up, right? You're you're you've yeah. got to finish school. Yeah, I'm. I'm actually graduated. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, 
Yeah. So my I mean, why leave, finished. right? Why leave such a place? <laughs> I know it's, it's really, really hard to, and I'm doing my best not to. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Well, good yes. luck on that front right. <laughs> as well. Thank, thank, thank you very much, Adam. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I don't know if you've been watching the pesticide news lately, but there was a really interesting study released lately in which over half of the wines tested contained detectable amounts of at least one pesticide. Often they contained more than one. And close to half of the pesticides detected are carcinogenic. The wines tested were all widely available wine, similar to the Dows and Jalors and Vuvclucos that everyone is buying for holiday parties at this time of year. Another interesting study I discovered this week that collected data on unintentional acute pesticide poisoning globally found that 44% of farmers annually are poisoned by pesticides. That is a huge number if you stop and think about it. So this is just an appeal to be thoughtful about the wine that you buy for your holiday parties and celebrations this year. Maybe consider buying a wine for which you know the grapes or fruit were farmed without pesticides. My winery, Centralis, is one of those pesticide-free wine options, and you can find it at centraliswine.com. But I'm sure you have options wherever you are as well. Have a delicious and joyful solstice season.